well-informed and inspired. We love God. We ought to be able to talk about Him. Getting you started on your day. With the latest in breaking news and information. From the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. It's serious. It's fun. It's your Catholic drive time. Now here's your host, Joe McClain. Praise be to Jesus Christ. And we are back with another episode of Catholic Drive Time. And I am actually not your host, Joe McClain. If you couldn't recognize my voice, uh, that's because this is actually Adrian Fonseca, the producer of Catholic Drive Time. And today we have a pre-recorded episode for you because today is Thanksgiving Day. What's the latest in breaking news and information from the Vatican to the White House Give our founding fathers some things today. And most of all, think of the blessed sacrament your host, Joe McClain. Thanksgiving. And think about the wonderful glory it is that we are able to be here today and praise God and give him thanks for the great, bountiful benefits that he bestows upon us. Think about that today on Thanksgiving Day. And let us know, what are you eating today? What are you having for your Thanksgiving dinner? What were your plans for Thanksgiving? I know for certain that right now, I'm definitely sleeping right now. I'm silent, you know, tucked in bed, sleeping away, dreaming while counting the sheep. And then I'm going to get up, and I'm going to eat a ton of turkey and ham. I'm just telling you right now, that's what's going to happen. But today, we have a pre-recorded interview to, for you today with Father George Elliott with the, from the Diocese of Tyler, Texas, uh, to talk about his book on the Eucharistic miracles from a theological perspective. So it's an excellent interview. You're not going to want to miss it. And that's going to be fill up our two seg- or three segments during the first hour. And during the, this first segment, we're going to do a Gospel of the Day, Saint of the Day, and we will not be doing a breaking news segment of the day. And there will be no game show in the second hour. So all this and more, uh, you have to look forward to coming up during this show. And tomorrow, we will also not be in studio. We will have a pre-recorded show again tomorrow, and we'll be back in studio on Monday. So don't fret. We will be back, I promise. So we will be back to our regularly scheduled programming uh, coming up on Monday. And so no game show today or tomorrow, pre-recorded show today and tomorrow. Okay. Without further ado, let's jump into it. I don't want to keep you uh, waiting across uh, just sitting around. You know, you want to know what's up. You want to hear the saint of the day. You want to hear the gospel of the day. And you want to get to Father George Eliot's uh, talk on the Eucharist, on the Eucharistic miracles. And so let's do that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known, that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. And they were the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Now is your saint of the day, so no breaking news of the day. And your saint of the day is St. Catherine of Alexandria. She was born in 287. She was born in Christian tradition states that she was of noble birth and probably a princess. And she was a member of the nobility. She would also be educated and was an avid scholar. She was around the age of 14. She experienced a moving vision of Mary in the infant Jesus, and she decided to become a Christian. Although she was a teenager, she was very intelligent and very gifted. When the emperor Maxentius began persecuting Christians, Catherine visited him to denounce his cruelty. Rather than order her execution, Maxentius summoned 50 orators and philosophers to debate her. However, Catherine was moved by the power of the Holy Ghost and spoke eloquently in defense of her faith. 
Her words were so moving that several of the pagans converted to Christianity and were immediately executed. Unable to defeat her rhetorically or to intimidate her into giving up her belief, the emperor ordered her to be tortured and imprisoned. Catherine was arrested and scourged. Despite the torture, she did not abandon her faith. Word of her arrest and the power of her faith quickly spread. Over 200 people ended up visiting her, and many, including the emperor's own wife, Valeria Maximilia, was converted by Catherine. The emperor eventually executed his own wife over her conversion. Following her imprisonment, Maxensis made a final attempt to persuade the beautiful Catherine to abandon her faith by proposing to marry her. This would have made her a powerful empress, but Catherine refused, saying she was married to Jesus Christ and that her virginity was dedicated to him. The emperor angrily ordered to be executed on a breaking wheel. The breaking wheel is an ancient form of torture where a person's limbs are threaded among the spokes and their bones are shattered by an executioner with a heavy rod. It is a brutal punishment that results in a slow and painful death, normally reserved for the worst criminals. When Crappen was presented before the wheel, she touched it and a miracle occurred that caused the wheel to shatter. Unable to torture her to death, the emperor simply ordered her to be beheaded. The angels took her body to Mount Sinai, and in the 6th century, the emperor Justinian ordered a monastery established in her name. The monastery St. Catherine's remains to this day and is one of the oldest in the world. Around the year 800, a legend spread that her body was being found with her hair still growing and a constant stream of oil coming from her body. She died in 305, and here's a brief Look at her execution. As the soldiers moved closer, Catherine fell to her knees and said, Oh, Jesus, my divine lover, I beg of you that whosoever shall praise your name in my memory shall call upon me to obtain your mercy, ask my aid at the hour of death, or in any necessity may receive a speedy answer to their prayer. And a voice answered her request, Come, my love, my spouse, to your heavenly home. The gates of heaven are open to you and to all who keep your memory on earth. I promise protection from heaven. The people were silent. The axe raised high. From the emperor came the command to strike, and as the head of Catherine fell to the floor, her stainless soul soared to its lover. The angels descended to the sacred relics and carried the beautiful body of Catherine to the Mount of Sinai, where it is buried with great honor and dignity. Our heavenly Catherine wishes to help us in our, all our trials and sufferings, to prove this, that this God allows even to this day a precious oil to flow from the bones of our saint, which invigorates the limbs of the weak. Then too, on the very day of her martyrdom, Catherine was thinking of us when she had her little prayer. What love she must have for us, a, true, a love truly Christ-like, which caused Catherine to have more concern over our needs than what she had for herself and at the, hour, at the very hour of death. Years pass on, and St. Catherine still keeps that same love for us. When France, the daughter of the church, was about to fall from the hands of the Dauphin, it was Catherine of Alexandria who came to Joan of Arc and consoled her and counseled her. Through the help of our queen, a peasant girl conquered the mighty armies of England and returned France to its rightful lord. Even today, St. Catherine is willing to help us overthrow our enemies in battle. To gain our souls for Christ is still her desire. And remember to all who keep her memory on earth is promised the protection of heaven. St. Catherine of Alexandria, pray for us. If you wanted to read about that, that's from the Benedictus Missal. The Gospel of the Day 
is from the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 17, verse 11 through 19. As Jesus continued his journey to Jerusalem, he traveled through Samaria and Galilee. As he was entering a village, ten persons with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance from him and raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go, show yourself to the priest. And when they were going, they were cleansed. And one of them, realizing he had been healed, returned, glorifying God in a loud voice. And he, was, and he fell at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus said in reply, Ten were cleansed, were they not? Where are the other nine? Has none but this foreigner returned to give thanks to God? Then he said to them, Stand up and go. Your faith has saved you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. The Gospel of the Day. Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful Gospel of the Day. And not to mention how great St. Catherine of Alexandria is. Spend the whole day talking about that alone. And today is Thanksgiving, so maybe I'll try to tie in a little bit of Thanksgiving ideas into this uh, gospel and saint of the day. I know one thing to uh, to note is give thanks to God for our great saints, for the great family we have in the church, this great cloud of witnesses that are up in heaven looking down on us, praying for us. How great of an intercessor we have in St. Catherine. It's quite wonderful. She's the patroness of single women. She's a patroness of apologists. And so many other things. It's a beautiful, beautiful person. I've never actually heard of her until today when I'm recording this. And I can't, I can't even imagine the fact that I haven't heard of her. She was apparently incredibly popular only until recently when she uh, fell out of popularity. But the gospel of the day, let's talk about that for a second. Verse 16, according to Knus Lapide, he says, quote, And fell down on his face at his feet, that by profound humiliation he might show his great reverence to him. As in the Greek and the Syriac, he was a Samaritan, a Samaritan and therefore an alien from an abhor- and abhorrent to the Jews, a schismatic. Moreover, so that it was wonderful that he alone gave thanks so earnestly to Jesus, who was a Jew, when the other lepers, who were Jews by nation and religion, passed him by and gave no thanks for so great a benefit. Now, this is, this is a very remarkable thing because whenever we receive benefits from people, Sometimes we take it as if we are owed it. Think to yourself about some, a time when you received a gift, especially on like your birthday or Christmas and things like that, or maybe on Thanksgiving. Ah, interesting. You're given something, you're given some kind of thing that you, is not owed to you, but because you receive it so oftenly and so easily, you have no gratefulness for it. We just take it as if we were owed it. As if I was owed this and therefore I don't need to thank anyone for it because this belonged to me. But this is not the case, especially when it comes to our Lord. It is a common thing whenever people talk about how it's so horrible that so many people end up in hell. And how could a good God send people to hell? But the problem here is that we are not owed heaven. In fact, we are owed hell. We have earned hell by our very sin. Every single sin, every slight against God has earned us eternal damnation. And it is only through the grace and mercy of God that we can enter into the kingdom of heaven. So instead of asking to ourselves, asking ourselves, how is it? How is it exactly that so many people end up in hell? 
No, no, instead, we should fall on our face before the living God. Go before the Blessed Sacrament. Go before the Eucharist, that means Thanksgiving, and give thanks to God and fall down on our face in all humility and thank God that anyone is saved. Because none of us are owed salvation. Not a single one of us are guiltless in the sight of God. We have all fallen short of the kingdom of God. Even the just man sins seven times a day. And I am no just man. And so instead of asking, how is it that some people, and if not most, many people end up in hell, let us give thanks to God. Let us go to the blessed sacrament today, fall on our faces, and just spend some time with our Lord and give him thanks, give him praise, give him glory. And when you're at Thanksgiving today, think about that today. Think about how great and wonderful a God we have that has bestowed upon us this great grace to humble himself to become the blessed sacrament so that way we may receive him and that which we are not owed. We talk about often about people, how dare someone refuse someone the Eucharist? We're not, we shouldn't refuse the Eucharist from anybody. We are not owed the Eucharist. Every grace from God is just that. It's a grace that we are not owed. Nothing about it has, has made us worthy to receive it. And let me read to you a little bit more from Cornelius Lapide. He says, moreover, they were ashamed to humble themselves before their own countrymen, referring to the Jews who were also healed, and to acknowledge the misery from which they had been delivered. Rightly, therefore, does Christ blame them, and he might with justice have deprived them of the benefit of the cure and allowed them to fall back into their leprosy. But he would not do this because his mercy was so great that it extended even to the ungrateful. St. Bernard sharply rebukes the wickedness of ingratitude on, in his canticles when he says, It is the enemy of our souls, the innation of our merits, the disperser of our virtues, the ruin of our benefactions. Ingratitude is a burning wind, drying up the fountain of holiness, the dew of mercy, and the streams of grace. Wow. Let's think about that today. Are we ungrateful? Do we show ingratitude to those who are our benefactors? I know every day, whenever I pray my rosary, my intention is for my friends, family, and benefactors. Every single day, as my prayer for all those who are benefactors of mine, for my friends and my family, every day is my intention because we have a obligation to give thanks and glory to those who have given us the opportunity to be, to be given the grace from others to be uh, <laughs> taken care of to be helped alright that'll do it think about that today go to Thanksgiving and thank God for all that he has done for you we'll be right back with Father George Elliott on Eucharistic Miracles don't go anywhere howdy this is Adrian Fonseca producer of the Catholic Drive Time Show heard Monday through Friday 6am Central and 7am Eastern right here on the Guadalupe Radio Network and I'm proud to tell you that Real Estate for Life is an underwriter of Catholic Drive Time. Real Estate for Life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations, offering their clients a faith-based experience. They are online at realestateforlife.org. That's realestateforlife.org. God love you. Often when confronted with the apostles' claim that Jesus rose from the dead, people ask if they made it up. And it's a reasonable question. So, did they? I don't think so, and here are a few reasons why. First, the early Christians had nothing to gain and everything to lose in lying about Jesus' resurrection, which makes their testimony credible. 
As Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, the only outcome for him lying is persecution and death. How does that serve as motivation for a lie? Second, the Gospel writers include women as the first witnesses. This is a big no-no if you're trying to fabricate a story in first century Judaism. According to the first century Jewish historian Josephus, the testimony of women wasn't considered reliable at the time. So, there's one thing we can be certain of. The apostles weren't lying about Jesus' resurrection. I'm Carlo Brusord with a ready reason for Catholic Answers. Catholic.com Dr. Stacey Trasenkos uh, have written a book, co-authored a book via TAN Publishing called Behold, It Is I, Scripture, Tradition, and Science on the Real Presence. And he joins us now. Good morning to you, Father George Elliott. Thank you to have. Thank you for having me, Joe. Praise be to God. We're very grateful to you. I'm especially grateful uh, because of what you did to my producer. You dragged him up a mountain. You forced him to hike 26 miles. I mean, it's the first time he's ever been camping. He'll probably never go again, but uh, hey, thanks anyway. We really appreciate it. It was good that. for him. Yeah, no, he's a good man. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a blast. It was a blast. Uh, I didn't, then we couldn't walk for a week, but it was great. <laughs> Praise be to God. That's awesome. Uh, we, this book is very interesting to me uh, on a number of levels. Uh, I, I, as a convert to the church, I've obviously had to wrestle with this particular doctrine, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. In fact, I would say to me, this was the doctrine I had to wrestle with. Our Lady, the Saints, the Pope, sure, those were issues, but the real presence was the issue for me. And the early church fathers and many apologetic works helped me to better understand it all. So let me ask you right out of the gate, Father, in your opinion, your estimation, what would make your book unique and interesting in uh, in the library of books that have been written on the topic? Yeah, so starting off, I thought about it as, you know, there, there isn't really a book out there that has the, the scriptures, tradition, and Eucharistic miracles all together in one work and at an accessible level. Uh, this this book actually kind of came out of my own experience as a pastor. I had a year where there were a number of people who, who came and spoke to me, either struggling with faith in the Eucharist or else kind of interested. You know, sometimes they were Catholics who were struggling or Protestants who really wanted to learn more. And every time I talked to one of them, I thought to myself, oh, there has to be a book out there that just has all of this. That's the perfect thing to hand to someone else <laughs> and say, hey, just read this and then come talk to me. And I couldn't find that. And so, uh, that's kind of where the, the book came from. And then I contacted Dr. Stacy Trasankos, um, who is a, a chemist and a, a theologian catechist. And so, and in, I, I asked her to write the section on Eucharistic miracles. And I didn't realize how good of a decision that was. Uh, you know, she really came at it as a, a chemist we were going to analyze all of these different Eucharistic miracles, but she said, no, look, if I'm doing this and I'm putting the name of chemist onto it, then I want to make sure and only talk about the miracles that we can get all of the, all of the scientific data mm. for. And so she really dove into these, uh, you know, scientific analyses. And um, I think one thing that's really interesting is this third section of the book where she goes in and she says, Hey, you know, the, there's a lot of evidence here on these scientific miracles, but there are a lot of 
scientific claims that are being made and that are repeated again and again and again about these Eucharistic miracles that actually aren't true. And, <laughs> wow. Ouch. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that's exactly what I thought as well. When she sent me this, uh, her pro- portion of the text, I almost thought to myself, oh my goodness, like, am I, am I going to have to pull the plug? Like, are, we, are we just going to cancel the whole book? How do we do this? You know? Are we canceling 2,000 uh, years of uh, tradition and teaching? I'm just curious. Let me know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, but as I thought more and more about it, I realized, you know, what? We, we're, we're Christians. We follow Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth and life. And, mm. and if we're repeating something about these, these miracles, which I think it's important to know, you know, nowhere do we really say these miracles didn't happen. None of us are trying to claim that, but she is saying, Hey, there are some things that are, that are yeah. repeated and find all over the place in the internet that just aren't true. Uh, and so we as Christians need to purify our narrative about mm. this and say the true things and not say the false things. Well, you know, uh, I was, as you say that I'm sitting here thinking about the Pew research study, the pillar has just recently put out a study of their own and the data doesn't look good. I mean, the data, even the, the CARA data held on Georgetown's university's website that the USCCB holds uh, 50 years of not good information. Everything is declining. People are moving away from faith to nothing to agnosticism and a lack of belief less than Less than 40% of Christians go to Sunday service of any kind in America these days. So few people believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So I can understand why we would not want to continue to perpetuate myths, uh, because as we try to win these souls back, they might be further scandalized if they find out it's not true. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, having having a mix of content, both true and false, false really destroys your whole argument. And so we need to... We need to stand on the truth. And, you know, God gave us plenty of truth. One of the other reflections that that I had as I was just working through uh, her part of the book myself, you know, it, it really wrecked me, um, was, you know, the Eucharist is, it's the, the, the sacrament of faith, right? Right after the the consecration, the priest says that the mystery of faith, or, you know, and obviously in the Greek tradition, mysterion is, is a sacrament. That's the Greek word for sacrament. So essentially the priest says, hey, this is the, this is the sacrament of faith. And uh, faith comes through hearing. Faith is the knowledge of things unseen. Um, and so when we turn to science to try to prove something about the the Eucharist, it almost kind of destroys what's at the very core of the mm. Eucharist. You know, the the Eucharist is meant to be at the source and summit of our faith. But really, uh, you know, God doesn't desire for us to be able to prove it through science. Mm. He's already proven it to us by his word in the scriptures and um, by the tradition of the church. Um, and so this shouldn't weaken our belief in the Eucharist at all. In fact, it should actually strengthen our, our true faith is it, is it almost as if we've given too much credit to science? As though, unless science proves it, I can't believe any of it? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly it. That's a real problem that we have in the 21st century. We've done great things with science, and we need to recognize that. But but science 
has its place. It cannot define, it cannot know everything. It's necessarily attached to uh, the material world. So what do we mean whenever we sit, talk about the Eucharist? Uh, what is meant here when we say, you know, it turns to the body and blood of Christ? Uh, what exactly are we saying? Because we're saying, oh, if you look under a microscope, it's, it's not body and blood. It's, it looks like bread and wine. Uh, so what, are, what do we mean here? Yeah, that's a, a big, big theological um, point there. So what we believe is that the, the substance of the bread and wine is uh, transformed, it's um, transubstantiated into uh, the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. And those externals, what uh, you know, we, we call philosophically the accidents, or those external appearances and properties of the bread and wine remain actually by a miracle. So, uh, you know, the Eucharistic miracles are almost in a certain sense a misnomer because finally the Eucharist looks like what it's supposed to look like. Um, but the, the, the miracle is, the, is that God holds the bread and wine, the external appearances of bread and wine there before our eyes, um, even though what's really there is the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. And that's been transformed by the power of God's word, the same word that said, you know, let there be light. And there was. And some people will say things like um, the every every mass, there's a Eucharistic miracle because the, the bread and wine is turning into the body and blood of Christ. Is that an accurate description of it? Or how would you describe the uh, transubstantiation as uh, opposed to, or I guess, to differentiate between that and a what we call Eucharistic miracles? Yeah, so the it, it kind of comes down to what what kind of miracle are we talking about, right? So as I was talking about earlier, the, the transubstantiation um, and that the keeping of the accidents or external appearances of the bread and wine, um, that really is a miracle in itself. I, I like to kind of parallel it to the idea of the transfiguration. You know, at the transfiguration, it's not that, you know, there was this miracle by which Jesus's glory was was shown forth. Actually, the miracle was in a certain sense the rest of his life, where mm-hmm. you know the the divine glory wasn't pouring through uh, his humanity. Um, and so, in the same way, you know that we could say a normal mass that we go to, uh, that Eucharistic miracle happens because God is present in all of His glory, all of His power, um, right there in His body, blood, soul, and divinity, and we can't see His glory. It's veiled by bread and wine, by the the appearances of bread and wine. Uh, Whereas for a Eucharistic miracle, that that veil is is removed and we can actually see uh, flesh and blood. You know, Father, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, this was the issue for me coming into the church. And, you know, just the other day, there was a concert in the city we live in, and tens of thousands of people were there. Unfortunately, eight people lost their lives in a horrible tragedy. Um, good luck getting that many people to go to Holy Mass on Sundays, you know, it seems. It's a very difficult process. Yet, what you, if what you just said was true, you would think every man, woman, and child on planet Earth would be lining up for miles to receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity in their very body. Why do you think this is a doctrine that is hard to understand, hard to believe in, and uh, hard to teach, it would seem, uh, for the church today? I think it goes back to what you were touching on earlier, this kind of overemphasis or overtrust in in science. Uh, 
right now, kind of in our world, we are taught to really only believe what we can see, uh, what we can touch, what we can feel, our own experience. And because we are are so into essentially, no, I need my, I need this absolute proof. Um, people look at the the Eucharist and they just kind of assume, well, because I can't see flesh and blood because I can't touch flesh and blood. Uh, it must not be true. These other people must be you know, kind of making this up or whatever it may be. Um, and so I think that's a major part of it. That's just kind of on the natural front that we're dealing with this societal trend. Um, I also am, am very convinced that the devil is real and he's having a bit of a heyday right now. You know, there've been times in the church in which the devil definitely um, was, was fighting a little bit more um, efficiently, effectively. And I think we're, we're in one of those times. And uh, so we really have to, you know, pardon the pun, stick to our guns <laughs> and uh, yeah, really uh, remain firm in the mm. faith. You know, I really like uh, you're in the diocese of Tyler, Texas, with uh, Bishop Strickland, and I'm just struck by the uh, the Eucharistic uh, emphasis that Bishop Strickland gives on in his diocese. And I'm thinking of him going out to the street corner with the Blessed Sacrament, and I'm thinking to myself, this is what this is what we need to bring back Eucharistic faith because we can talk about it all day. We can say yes, the transubstantiation is real. Yes, it's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. But do we act like it? I mean, we can say these things, but if we don't act like it, then who no one's going to believe us. They're saying, I have the famous stories of many Protestants saying, you know, if you really believed it, I'd crawl on broken glass to receive the blessed sacrament. And you guys just walk up and, and grab it like it's a cracker. Um, can you talk a bit about how the Lex Orandi and Lex Credendi of the faith? Absolutely. Yeah. So that, that term, that Lex, Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, is the idea that how we pray is how we believe or that prayer affects belief and really uh, belief affects prayer and I think without a doubt in the last 50 years or so there's been a real loss of don't go anywhere we'll be right back with Father George Elliott on Eucharistic Miracles don't go anywhere we'll be right back happy Thanksgiving Most of us can recall a childhood memory of innocence and a peace that only comes from God. Yet with our busy schedules today, many families don't attend church weekly or spend much time teaching their children about God. So many families now are burdened by financial and family challenges, substance abuse, and other worries. But there is hope. Studies show that people who pray regularly and practice their Christian faith are less stressed, financially stable, more compassionate, optimistic, healthier, and happier. Experience a positive difference in your life and for your family by coming home to your parish. Learn more by visiting catholicscomehome.org today. Here you may find answers to your questions and discover how Jesus and the sacraments will bless your family. There's no pressure or risk. You've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Do it for your kids. Do it for yourself. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. Howdy, this is Adrian Fonseca, producer of the Catholic Drive Time Show. Heard Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. Central and 7 a.m. Eastern, right here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. And I'm proud to tell you that Real Estate for Life is an underwriter of Catholic Drive Time, 
Real Estate for Life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations, offering their clients a faith-based experience. They are online at realestateforlife.org. That's realestateforlife.org. God love you. without a doubt in the last 50 years or so there's been a real loss of eucharistic piety specifically in the mass obviously which is that central uh, moment of, of eucharistic worship and um you know you can talk about a million different things that have affected that but what it comes down to is that um how most people approach the mass how unfortunately many priests celebrate the mass and how many people receive communion really doesn't express what's really going on mm-hmm. uh you know it's it's a the trend in, and I, I can understand from kind of the conversion standpoint where people say like oh well, i want to be able to come to mass and you know and just feel comfortable um you know I, it, it makes me think of um when people go to weddings or any formal event, I always, I actually love being a a priest because I never have to wear a tie again. (laughs) Done with that. Uh, Because ties are just so uncomfortable. And, you know, the, the shoes that you have to wear. And, you know, if you have a suit that you don't wear all the time, the suit pants never fit right. There's always a problem with them. And so you're, you're just constantly uncomfortable at any formal event. And yet you choose to, to be uncomfortable because, you know, this is an important thing. Um, and yet, you know, in regard to the mass, people say, well, I just want to be comfortable. I'm like, okay, you know, as someone is is entering into a more uh, full life of faith, I can understand that they aren't willing to make that kind of sacrifice early on. But there needs to come a time in which we begin to say, no, I believe this. And therefore, I'm going to approach this uh, in in the same way that I approach anything else that's important in my life. Um, and then in regard to how priests celebrate the mass, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a sad thing that you could, you know, you could watch some masses and, and never think that uh, anything divine is happening. And, you know, I think as a priest, we have to own that, that uh, sometimes the, the fact that, you know, priests are celebrating mass every single day or sometimes even multiple times a day, unfortunately, allows the priests to not have the same care and, and devotion when they do offer mass. We're talking um, with, I'm sorry, well, we're talking with Father George Elliott. He is the author, a co-author with Dr. Stacy Trasankos of Behold, It Is I, Scripture, Tradition, and Science on the Real Presence, published by TAN. I'm sorry, I, I cut you off. No worries at all. Yeah, and I was just... um talking about the that third reason why we've got we, we seem to have this kind of lack in in faith in the eucharist connected to as adrian was asking um you know lex orandi lex credendi this idea that uh the law of faith is the law of um of prayer so essentially how how people believe affects how they pray and how they pray affects how they believe and that last point uh just how people receive the eucharist mm. uh, i i recently actually gave a homily in uh, my parish here encouraging people to receive kneeling and on the tongue Mm. and you know i think the the image that a lot of people connected with was uh you know for especially for children when when they're watching other people receive communion 
what are the simple thoughts that they have? Okay, well, these people are all just walking up and, you know, receiving in their hands and then they're eating from their hands. Well, what else do we eat standing up and in our hands? Hmm. Potato chips, hot dogs, hamburgers, if you're really coordinated. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We have a big Hispanic community as well. And so, you know, when I was preaching in Spanish, I was like, look, we eat tacos standing up from our hands. The Eucharist is not a taco, but how we're acting communicates to our young people that this is the same as a taco. Uh, And unfortunately, you know, as as you were talking about in many of these surveys that have happened, uh, most people consider the Eucharist to be about as meaningful as a taco. And that's, that's Mm. an, that's abhorrent in in the faith. Yeah. Let me go back to uh, the, you know, there's three sections here, scripture, tradition, and science. Let's go talk about tradition. This is an interesting area because, again, I was so enamored with this particular topic. Was Jesus speaking literally when he taught the doctrine of the Holy Eucharist and sacred scripture. And uh, when I started to look at the early church fathers, you read the Didache, and it says you have to go to confession before you receive communion on Sunday. I'm like, wow, okay, that's kind of a Catholic idea, but let's keep moving. You get Ignatius of Antioch, who talks about the flesh of Christ. God, that's getting a little bit more uncomfortably Catholic right there. St. Justin the Martyr that explains the details of the Holy Mass in, uh, in about the year 125 AD or so. I mean, over and over and over again, not even instant, you don't have to read the, the documents in the New Testament, you read the early Church Fathers from the earliest days, you realize they were Catholic, they held this doctrine from day one, um, and yet why are so many in the Catholic tradition, or in Christian traditions and Protestant traditions, still denying this one doctrine? And I think that is that is the question of all questions. You know, so many of our Protestant brothers and sisters, they, they, they talk about, um, you know, oh yeah, I just want to be like the early church. I just, you know, I just want to go back to that original Catholicism, not stained by, you know, all of these scandals and years of tradition and things of that sort. And then you read the fathers and you think, wait, wait a second. They, they sound awfully Catholic to me. Yeah. Um, and I, I really have a hard time pinning it down. Um, I, I can't answer that question. Why is it that so many uh, Christians who really have even read the fathers of the church don't stop and say, man, these fathers of the church, they, they seem to write just like the Catholics do. <laughs> yeah. um, kind of weird how they always have bishop in front of their name. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, especially when you begin to think about kind of the, the, the lineage or who studied under who, you know, you talked about St. Ignatius of Antioch really talking about, you know, the flesh of Christ. Mm. Um, well, St. Ignatius of Antioch studied under John the Apostle, right, the evangelist. So it kind of colors even how we need to read back into the scriptures and see John chapter 6. A similar one, uh, St. Irenaeus was under Polycarp. And of course, Polycarp and Ignatius were friends, were childhood friends, and they they also studied under uh, John the Apostle. And so, you know, now you have this line where, you know, Ignatius, or sorry, Irenaeus speaks extremely strongly uh, about the Eucharist. And, um, you know, well, here's John the the apostle and remember this is the beloved disciple the one who laid his head on the the chest of christ during the last supper the one who who stood by the cross of christ this guy taught polycarp polycarp taught irenaeus and irenaeus clearly saying these things 
I don't know that I believe that it could have been tainted in any way in that short of a kind of generational chain. You had Tertullian saying in the flesh of Christ over this doctrine, if you didn't hold this doctrine, you can't call yourself Christian. Yeah, that's what I love about the fathers is, you know, they aren't really arguing about the Eucharist because the Eucharist was just held as this clear thing that, of course, we believe this. You know, this is this is the body and blood of Christ. Jesus said so. We believe it. Um, but what's neat about it is whenever the Eucharist shows up, it's oftentimes it's either in devotion, like you see in, in St. Ignatius of Antioch, or um, really very clearly in Irenaeus, they're arguing against the heretics and using the Eucharist as a proof against the heretics. So they're, they're fighting against the, uh, the Dostists who say that Jesus didn't really have real flesh and blood. He mm. didn't really die on the cross. He just looked like he died on the cross. He didn't really rise from the dead. He just looked like it. And Irenaeus is saying, wait, you guys, we believe that the Eucharist is Jesus's flesh and blood. If we believe that, we have to believe that he had flesh and blood. <laughs> You know, and so now it's, it's kind of this universal thing where he's saying, look, all of us believe in the Eucharist. How can you not, not believe that Jesus actually had flesh and blood? And so the, the fundamental universal thing that was believed was actually the Eucharist. Mm. Yeah, that's, so, that's quite incredible. And it's just like, it's just, it mind blows, it just blows my mind because I was talking to a Protestant, we were debating salvation, and we, afterwards, we were talking, uh, we were just chatting a bit, and he was like, well, yeah, well, and, and it reminds me of Zwingli. So the, the Zwingli famously, whenever he was brought up, whenever the topic of uh, baptismal regeneration was brought up, uh, he said, after reading all the fathers, I must conclude that all the fathers were wrong. <laughs> and I was like, wow, the arrogance. And I was talking to this Protestant guy, and we were talking about this, and he was like, well, I got to say, I mean, if all the followers agree, and the Bible says otherwise, then I have to go with the Bible. And it's like, are you, like it's, it's, and it's mind-blowing to me that, that people can look at it and just take Scripture out of con the historical context that it belonged, and the people who created the Scriptures, who created the canon, and just throw it out the window. And it, that just blows my mind, the arrogance of it. Uh, but uh, one question I wanted to do, and I kind of want to give you a little bit of a, a compliment. I just don't tell my brother I said this. Uh, my brother is goes to school at Stephen Faustin where you are uh, saying mass and uh, a chaplain there and uh, Stephen Faustin in Houston or in uh, Nacogdoches, uh, Texas. And he uh, he's always telling me, he's like, oh, you got, you got to meet this priest. And finally, I mean, I've met you by going hiking with you. He's like, you got to meet this priest. He's really awesome. He's really smart. And he has such reverence for the Eucharist. I mean, and my brother was so on fire for this. And it reminds me of the rest of that quote. The quote is Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, Lex Vivendi. And that's last part is always uh, is often forgotten. It's uh, uh, the law of, of worship is the law of belief is a law of how we live. And that kind of brings me into the topic of talking about uh, Eucharistic processions and the way that the priest, there is, it's often said like a, a priest who goes to heaven brings many souls with them. A priest who goes to hell drags many souls with them. Could you talk a little bit about that aspect and, and Eucharistic processions? Why do we do those? And why is it important that these things affect the way we live? But first, we're going to go to a break and we write back more with Father George on Eucharistic miracles in just one second. Happy Thanksgiving. This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Minute. How many times have you heard it said that the church has been weak and ineffective? 
Well, G.K. Chesterton says the church has been so powerful and effective that it colored even the things it had not hoped to influence and changed its enemies as well as its friends. It affects everything it touches. It inspires a life-changing love from its friends and a self-destructive hatred from its enemies. Its enemies will do everything to destroy it, and they end up destroying everything, except the church. The Catholic Church, says Chesterton, has endured for 2,000 years, and the world within the church has been more lucid, more level-headed, more reasonable in its hopes, more healthy in its instincts, more humorous and cheerful in the face of fate and death than all the world outside. Want more than a minute? Chesterton.org. GloryAndShine.com, a generous underwriter of Catholic Drive Time. GloryAndShine.com is a Catholic family-owned company making a variety of personal care products ranging from lotions, soap bars, gift boxes, body mist, beard care, and more. At GloryAndShine.com, they state their mission is to, quote, craft every product with deep intention while holding a vision of sharing the gospel. They are good for the body, mind, and soul, unquote. God love you, GloryAndShine.com. Thank you again. He's really smart, and he has such reverence for the Eucharist. I mean, my brother was so on fire for this, and it reminds me of the rest of that quote. The quote is, Lex orandi, Lex credendi, Lex vivendi. And that last part is always, uh, is often forgotten. It's uh, uh, the law of, of worship, is the law of belief, is the law of how we live. And that kind of brings me into the topic of talking about uh, Eucharistic processions and the way that... The priest, there is, it's often said like a, a priest who goes to heaven brings many souls with them. A priest who goes to hell drags many souls with them. Could you talk a little bit about that aspect and, and Eucharistic processions? Why do we do those? And why is it important that these things affect the way we live? Yeah, great question. First off, that's very kind of, of your brother. Um, I think he may have played me up a little bit too much there. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, the Eucharistic processions have a, a couple different um, aspects to them. Um, my personal favorite. So I, I spent some time in the military, and so I have a very just militaristic, you know, heart. Preach it, um, Father. Preach it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, you can see in the O Salutaris, there's this clear uh, kind of battle component to it, um, and, and so in part, the Eucharistic processions are are an act of war. It's an act of invasion. Um, Jesus Christ coming forth from the tabernacle um, and being processed through the world, reclaiming, casting uh, the devil out and saying, this is my territory. This is my land. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of um, military parade, you could almost say. Um, and then, obviously, for us uh, as, as Christians, there, there is this whole other act of worship, you know, one of the big problems I think that we have with religion uh, today is that it, it gets put into a box. You know, religion is, is a private practice. It's something that happens at church, but really that's, that's not how this is supposed to be. It's supposed to move throughout the entire world um, and throughout, throughout our entire lives. And a Eucharistic procession is one of these ways to take the, the source and summit of our faith 
and to bring it out into the world, into our everyday lives, into the places that that we live, not just when we're at mass. And so it's it's actually this kind of act of devotion and, and worship and saying, Lord, you are Lord, not just of me when I'm at church, but also when I'm out on the street, when I'm at home, when I'm in the neighborhood, when I'm at work, whenever it is that I'm doing, uh, that is where you are Lord as well. Mm. And then lastly, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think there's a big um, statement of faith, uh, especially for us today in 21st century America. It's um, it's it's a little bit of a statement to go walking around with the Eucharist. And that kind of a statement is an act of faith in itself. It's saying, yes, I believe this. I follow Jesus Christ, even when other people don't understand, even when other people may look and think, oh, that's weird. I am willing to put my faith in Jesus Christ, my fidelity to Jesus Christ, before the opinion of other people. Father George Elliott is our guest. He, along with Stacy Trusankos, Dr. Stacy Trusankos of the St. Philip uh, Institute out of Tyler, Texas, have co-authored this book. It's called Behold, It Is I, Scripture, Tradition, and Science on the Real Presence. It is published by TAN, and I, we encourage you to get it. We have just a, a, a few minutes left in our conversation with you, Father George. Um, I want to kind of come back to the science aspect. We talked about this earlier, you know, wrapping up some of the uh, the myths and misconceptions that have been per- perpetuated, probably out of a pure uh, piety, right? Uh, sort of a, a pious viewpoint on these mu- Eucharistic miracles. But I'm curious, what was it about Dr. Trasankos's research that surprised you most? I think it was her, it was really her in, integrity in going about it, that she said, no, if I'm going to be writing a book, I'm not just going to repeat what everybody else says. Uh, she went searching for the materials, and actually it was a bit of a um, kind of a, a gift from God. Our, our bishop, Bishop Strickland, happened to be in uh, Australia for, he was visiting from some family there and went to a conference. And uh, one of the people who had done all of the the research for the Buenos Aires miracles said, hey, Bishop Strickland, I love what you're doing. Here's all of my research for Eucharistic miracles. I don't know what you might want to do with (laughs) it. Uh, And so Bishop Strickland immediately shipped it to Dr. Trasenkos and (laughs) she, said, well, this is an absolute godsend. And she was able to really analyze all of those different things. And so, you know, how she gets into the details, I think, is is what's most amazing. And the fact that she's not willing to just repeat what everybody else says. Mm -hmm. She says, oh, this is what we can say, and this is what we can't. And we need to make sure and uh, really remain in the truth, only say what what is true. Are there any curveballs in this book on that regard that we're going to be really blown away by? Um, so one of them that I was uh, really surprised about, there's this statement about, I believe it's on the um, Buenos Aires Miracles that, that, you know, 500 World Health Organization commissions analyzed the, um, the, the miracles and, you know, said that there was no natural explanation for it. Um, she went, or she, she didn't go, but she uh, was able to get in contact with somebody who um, has all of that in their archives and they pulled it out and looked at it and the first page says that. And then you turn the page and it's actually, um, it's an, a chemical analysis of an Egyptian mummy. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Not yeah. quite the same as a Eucharistic miracle. Exactly. And so it's one of these, 
whoa, <laughs> all right, well, we need to stop saying that. Yeah. I mean, I myself in, in teaching and preaching, I've used that because you can find it everywhere. And so I've really had mm. to purify um, what I say and what I teach. Um, Everything on the internet is true, Father. I'm not sure what you're trying to say I, here. Abraham, Link, Abraham Lincoln said that I saw on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. but, but I guess that uh, will people be truly scandalized? I guess that's the question. Are they going to be, are they, will their world be rocked by some of this information? Yeah. So I think it, so at the end of the book, we really try to, to tie it together. And I think it's important that my two sections, which are the scripture and tradition, um, are read and that the entire book is read in unison. Mm -hmm. And so the people who have read the book uh, have given us the feedback that, you know what, my faith is actually stronger in the Eucharist. I believe wow. in the Eucharist even more because the first two parts, if you know the scriptures and you know the, the tradition that, you know, the early church, you can't not believe in the Eucharist. Mm. And then looking at the Eucharistic miracles, it's kind of like, oh, wow, well, no, we can say some things about these things. These things happened, they, you know, <laughs> they need to be dealt with, but we don't need to repeat falsehoods about them. And we try and tie up at the very end this fact that, look, we're not denying that any of these Eucharistic miracles happened. Um, that's not at all the case. And in fact, um, you know, the, this purity of the narrative about these Eucharistic miracles should strengthen us and draw us even more back to uh, the Word of God and mm -hmm. the Church. Bishop Strickland wrote the foreword here. Yes. Yeah, we were very honored to have him write it. Oh, wonderful. Praise be to God. Uh, how? Uh, when did the book get released? And uh, I guess the best place is to find it on TAN? That's right. The book was re released in October, and you can get it on TAN or any of the normal places that you buy books. Um, real quick, before we say goodbye, uh, let me just ask you it's the it's the the process of synodality has started all across holy mother church and there are many catholics i think i put myself in the same category that are very concerned about what the hierarchy is is thinking when it comes to the modern world and how best to evangelize it and with so few finding themselves agreeing with the church's teaching on the real presence of christ in the eucharist what would you hope to see uh, as regards to either the, the U.S. bishops or b bishops around the world meeting and discussing these issues, what would you want them to do or take away uh, in regards to this particular topic? Yeah, so I think first off, the Synod on Synodality is a, is, is a great way to um, make a document that doesn't say a lot. Right. Anytime that a committee makes something, <laughs> yeah, nothing is actually said. And so I, I don't think it's worth it to really fret too much about it. I don't think anything is going to be said. Um, what would I want to be said? I would want a, a clear reaffirmation of mm. what we believe about the Eucharist. Um, you know, you talked about the pillar research and I haven't read, I haven't looked through all of the data yet and they're slowly releasing it. Um, but one thing that I did notice is that it seems that there is a smaller, more convinced church. Um, there are fewer people going to mass, but the percentage of people who are going to mass or who identify as Catholics are, seem to be more convicted and more um, really living their faith. And this is a pattern that has happened multiple times in the church. You have a, a big expansion where there are all sorts of people uh, entering into the church. Um, but the fervor ends up going down. And then when the fervor goes down, slowly the church shrinks. You get a very convicted um, group of Catholics, and 
that is when uh, the real power of the Holy Spirit is able to shine through them, and that evangelization happens again, and, and expansion happens again. And so, what we need is to really turn, uh, to, to really look at those faithful Catholics and make sure that we are being clear to them, helping them be convicted of their faith, uh, because it's it's from that mustard seed mm. that um, you know the the church can grow. All right. Well, we are out of time. Father George Elliott's been our guest, uh, co-authoring this book with Dr. Stacy Trasankos. Behold it as I pick it up on TAN, tanbooks.com. Father Elliott, thank you. Could you uh, leave us with your priestly blessing? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Praise be to God. God love you, Father. Thank you. Thank you. All right. God love you, God bless you, and have a wonderful Thanksgiving day, and we look forward to being back in studio on Monday, but tomorrow we will also be having a pre-recorded show because the GRN has graciously given us both today and tomorrow off for Thanksgiving, and so, but we will not leave you abandoned. We will be here today and tomorrow for the finish up our hour today and our show tomorrow with a brand new, never heard before Catholic Drive Time show. If you haven't made it to Holy Mass today, be sure to go to Holy Mass because, you know, today's Thanksgiving. And what better way to celebrate Thanksgiving than to celebrate the Holy Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving. So praise be to Jesus Christ for it. And we will see you back here tomorrow. Our game show will be there. will not be here to, on the, the show for tomorrow or for the next hour as it is a pre-recorded show. But we will be back in studio with our regularly scheduled programming this time on Monday, 6 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Eastern, across the Guadalupe Radio Network and Station of the Cross. God love you, God bless you, and we'll see you on the other side. Thank you for joining us on Your Catholic Drive Time, where it is our pleasure to keep you informed and inspired. Join us Monday through Friday at the same time, right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. Don't forget to connect with us. Just go to facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Be sure to share more than just us today. Share Jesus with everyone you meet. Bye now, and God love you. What should I keep in mind when I'm trying to defend my faith? Well, number one, ingrain this into your psyche. The Bible is a Catholic book. The Catholic Church gave it to the world, which means there is nothing, nothing in the Bible that is contrary to anything in the Catholic faith, and there is nothing in the Catholic faith that is contrary to anything in the Bible. Always remember that. This is important to remember because a lot of times folks will quote a passage from the Bible that proves the Catholic Church is wrong. Whenever someone quotes your Bible verse that proves the Catholic Church is wrong on something, your response should be, Amen. I believe what the Bible says. As a Catholic, I believe everything the Bible says. However, I don't agree with your personal infallible interpretation of that passage. And the reason you don't agree with their personal interpretation is because 100% of the time you're presented with a verse that proves the Catholic Church wrong, that verse has either A, been taken out of context, or B, the verse simply doesn't say what they're trying to make it say. 
Number two, and this flows directly from number one, the Catholic Church can be defended solely from the Bible better than any other Christian faith tradition can be. A good bit in the various Protestant faith traditions actually contradicts the Bible. So do not be afraid to engage non-Catholics in a discussion of the Bible. And number three, if you are ever asked a question about your faith that you cannot answer, don't worry. There is an answer for that question. You just need to go and find it. Simply respond, I don't know, but I will find out and get back to you. Then find out and get back to them. As Catholics, we need to reclaim the Bible. It's our book. We need to read it, pray it, learn it, and use it to bring our separated brothers and sisters back to the church. If you keep these things in mind, you have started down the road to being a very effective apologist for the Catholic faith. A beacon of truth in a troubled world. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network. Radio for your soul. Howdy, this is Adrian Fonseca, producer of the Catholic Drive Time Show. Heard Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. Central and 7 a.m. Eastern, right here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. And I'm proud to tell you that Real Estate for Life is an underwriter of Catholic Drive Time. Real Estate for Life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations, offering their clients a faith-based experience. They are online at realestateforlife.org. That's realestateforlife.org. God love you. Welcome to your Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. We love God. We ought to be able to talk about Him. Getting you started on your day. With the latest in breaking news and information from the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. It's serious. It's fun. It's your Catholic Drive Time. Now here's your host, Joe McClain. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time. This is your producer, Adrian Fonseca, because Joe and I are out of town today, or not out of town, my mistake, I'm speaking when I'm very tired. No, we are probably in bed, is the reality of it. Today is a pre-recorded show because it is Thanksgiving Day, which means no game show today. So don't call in, not today anyways, but you can call back in on Monday because there's going to be a pre-recorded show today and again tomorrow. So make sure you tune in because this is not an old show. In fact, this is brand new content, never before heard or seen if you're watching online. But praise be to God, because today is Thanksgiving Day. I hope you are giving a sleeping in for one. I hope you're having a good uh, holiday for today. And I hope you are going to go to Holy Mass because, you know, it may not be a Catholic holiday, but Eucharist, meaning Thanksgiving What better way to give thanks to God for all the wonderful benefits that he has bestowed upon us than to go to Holy Mass and give thanks to God for all that he has done for you and I. And if you go to Holy Mass, then uh, let me know and pray for us. Pray for the GRN, pray for Joe and I. We'd love to have you be praying for us today, our benefactors, both spiritual benefactors or financial benefactors, either one, you know, praise be to God for both. And let's see, what else? Today, we will let you know how our Thanksgiving went on Monday. I don't know how my Thanksgiving went just yet, but I imagine it was filled with turkey and ham. So I'm foreseeing a lot of food talk on Monday. I'm just saying that's my prediction That's what I'm seeing in the future. I am not a prophet, nor am I son of a prophet, but that is my prediction for Monday. 
Monday's show. So, no game show today, but praise be to God, we will have our game show on Monday, so don't call in today. This is a pre-recorded show. Today we'll have our Gospel of the Day, Saint of the Day, as usual, and then we will just have a extended time talking about some of the things going on that are not exactly related to the Gospel of the Day and Saint of the Day, but we are not doing the game show, and nothing heavy. We're going to have a more lighthearted stuff, talking about some things related to the church And maybe have a little bit of discussion about Thanksgiving, the origins of Thanksgiving, and some of the Catholic origins of Thanksgiving. Hmm, interesting. Did you know? Did you know that the uh, first Thanksgiving was in Florida? Hmm, what's that about? How how does that work exactly? Well, I'm going to tell you in just a moment. Uh, But let's pray. We're going to offer up this hour for the uh, souls in purgatory. We're going to offer it up in thanksgiving to God for our friends, family, and benefactors, and all those that have asked us to pray for them. And so we're going to do our memorare. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known, that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Now is your saint of the day, so no breaking news of the day. And your saint of the day is St. Catherine of Alexandria. She was born in 287. She was born in Christian tradition states that she was of noble birth and probably a princess. And she was a member of the nobility. She would also be educated and was an avid scholar. She was around the age of 14. She experienced a moving vision of Mary in the infant Jesus, and she decided to become a Christian. Although she was a teenager, she was very intelligent and very gifted. When the emperor Maxentius began persecuting Christians, Catherine visited him to denounce his cruelty. Rather than order her execution, Maxentius summoned 50 orators and philosophers to debate her. However, Catherine was moved by the power of the Holy Ghost and spoke eloquently in defense of her faith. Her words were so moving that several of the pagans converted to Christianity and were immediately executed. Unable to defeat her rhetorically or to intimidate her into giving up her belief, the emperor ordered her to be tortured and imprisoned. Catherine was arrested and scourged. Despite the torture, she did not abandon her faith. Word of her arrest and the power of her faith quickly spread. Over 200 people ended up visiting her and many including the emperor's own wife, Valeria Maximilia, was converted by Catherine. The emperor eventually executed his own wife over her conversion. Following her imprisonment, Maxensis made a final attempt to persuade the beautiful Catherine to abandon her faith by proposing to marry her. This would have made her a powerful empress, but Catherine refused, saying she was married to Jesus Christ and that her virginity was dedicated to him. The emperor angrily ordered to be executed on a breaking wheel. The breaking wheel is an ancient form of torture where a person's limbs are threaded among the spokes and their bones are shattered by an executioner with a heavy rod. It is a brutal punishment that results in a slow and painful death, normally reserved for the worst criminals. When Catherine was presented before the will, she touched it and a miracle occurred that caused the will to shatter. Unable to torture her to death, the emperor simply ordered her to be beheaded. 
The angels took her body to Mount Sinai, and in the 6th century, the Emperor Justinian ordered a monastery established in her name. The monastery St. Catherine's remains to this day and is one of the oldest in the world. Around the year 800, a legend spread that her body was being found with her hair still growing and a constant stream of oil coming from her body. She died in 305, and here's a brief look at her execution. As the soldiers moved closer, Catherine fell to her knees and said, Oh, Jesus, my divine lover, I beg of you that whosoever shall praise your name in my memory shall call upon me to obtain your mercy, ask my aid at the hour of death, or in any necessity may receive a speedy answer to their prayer. And a voice answered her request, Come, my love, my spouse, to your heavenly home. The gates of heaven are open to you and to all who keep your memory on earth. I promise protection from heaven. The people were silent. The axe raised high. From the emperor came the command to strike, and as the head of Catherine fell to the floor, her stainless soul soared to its lover. The angels descended to the sacred relics and carried the beautiful body of Catherine to the Mount of Sinai, where it is buried with great honor and dignity. Our heavenly Catherine wishes to help us in our, all our trials and sufferings, to prove this, that this God allows even to this day a precious oil to flow from the bones of our saints, which invigorates the limbs of the weak. Then, too, on the very day of her martyrdom, Catherine was thinking of us when she had her little prayer. What love she must have for us, a, true, a love truly Christ-like, which caused Catherine to have more concern over our needs than what she had for herself and at the, hour, at the very hour of death. Years pass on, and St. Catherine still keeps that same love for us. When France, the daughter of the church, was about to fall from the hands of the Dauphin, it was Catherine of Alexandria who came to Joan of Arc and consoled her and counseled her. Through the help of our queen, a peasant girl conquered the mighty armies of England and returned France to its rightful lord. Even today, St. Catherine is willing to help us overthrow our enemies in battle. To gain our souls for Christ is still her desire. And remember to all who keep her memory on earth is promised the protection of heaven. St. Catherine of Alexandria, pray for us. If you wanted to read about that, that's from the Benedictus Missal. The Gospel of the day is from the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 17, verse 11 through 19. As Jesus continued his journey to Jerusalem, he traveled through Samaria and Galilee. As he was entering a village, ten persons with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance from him and raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go, show yourself to the priest. And when they were going, they were cleansed. And one of them, realizing he had been healed, returned, glorifying God in a loud voice. And he, was, and he fell at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus said in reply, Ten were cleansed, were they not? Where are the other nine? Has none but this foreigner returned to give thanks to God? Then he said to them, Stand up and go. Your faith has saved you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. The Gospel of the Day. Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful Gospel of the Day. And not to mention how great St. Catherine of Alexandria is. I spend the whole day talking about that alone. And today is Thanksgiving, so maybe I'll try to tie in a little bit of Thanksgiving ideas into this uh, gospel and saint of the day. I know one thing to uh, to note is give thanks to God for our great saints, for the great family we have in the church, this great cloud of witnesses that are up in heaven looking down on us, praying for us. How great of an intercessor we have in St. Catherine. 
It's quite wonderful. She's the patroness of single women. She's a patroness of apologist and so many other things. It's a beautiful, beautiful person. I've never actually heard of her until today when I'm recording this. And I can't, I can't even imagine the fact that I haven't heard of her. She was apparently incredibly popular only until recently when she uh, fell out of popularity. But the gospel of the day, let's talk about that for a second. Verse 16, according to Canos Lapide, he says, quote, and fell down on his face at his feet, that by profound humiliation, he might show his great reverence to him. As in the Greek and the Syriac, he was a Samaritan, a Samaritan and therefore an alien from an abhor- and abhorrent to the Jews, a schismatic. Moreover, so that it was wonderful that he alone gave thanks so earnestly to Jesus, who was a Jew, when the other lepers, who were Jews by nation, and religion passed him by and gave no thanks for so great a benefit. Now, this is, this is a very remarkable thing because whenever we receive benefits from people, sometimes we take it as if we are owed it. Think to yourself about some, a time when you received a gift, especially on like your birthday or Christmas and things like that, or maybe on Thanksgiving. Ah, interesting. You're given something, you're given some kind of thing that is not owed to you, but because you receive it so oftenly and so easily, you have no gratefulness for it. We just take it as if we were owed it, as if I was owed this, and therefore I don't need to thank anyone for it because this belonged to me. But this is not the case, especially when it comes to our Lord. It is a common thing whenever people talk about how it's so horrible that so many people end up in hell. And how could a good God send people to hell? Well, the problem here is that we are not owed heaven. In fact, we are owed hell. We have earned hell by our very sin. Every single sin, every slight against God has earned us eternal damnation. And it is only through the grace and mercy of God that we can enter into the kingdom of heaven. So instead of asking to ourselves, asking ourselves, how is it? How is it exactly that so many people end up in hell? No, no. Instead, we should fall on our face before the living God. Go before the blessed sacrament. Go before the Eucharist. That means Thanksgiving. And give thanks to God and fall down on our face in all humility and thank God that anyone is saved. Because none of us are owed salvation. Not a single one of us are guiltless in the sight of God. We have all fallen short of the kingdom of God. Even the just man sins seven times a day. And I am no just man. And so instead of asking, how is it that some people, and if not most, many people end up in hell, let us give thanks to God. Let us go to the blessed sacrament today, fall on our faces, and just spend some time with our Lord and give him thanks, give him praise, give him glory. And when you're at Thanksgiving today, think about that today. Think about how great and wonderful a God we have that has bestowed upon us this great grace to humble himself to become the blessed sacrament so that way we may receive him and that which we are not owed. We talk about often about people, how dare someone refuse someone the Eucharist? We're not, we shouldn't refuse the Eucharist from anybody. We are not owed the Eucharist. Every grace from God is just that. It's a grace that we are not owed. Nothing about it has, has made us worthy to receive it. And let me read to you a little bit more from Cornelius Lapide. He says, moreover, they were ashamed to humble themselves before their own countrymen, referring to the Jews who were also healed, and to acknowledge the misery from which they had been delivered. 
Rightly, therefore, does Christ blame them. And he might with justice have deprived them of the benefit of the cure and allowed them to fall back into their leprosy. But he would not do this because his mercy was so great that it extended even to the ungrateful. St. Bernard sharply rebukes the wickedness of ingratitude on, in his canticles when he says, It is the enemy of our souls, the innation of our merits, the disperser of our virtues, the ruin of our benefactions. Ingratitude is a burning wind, drying up the fountain of holiness, the dew of mercy, and the streams of grace. Wow. Let's think about that today. Are we ungrateful? Do we show ingratitude to those who are our benefactors? I know every day, whenever I pray my rosary, my intention is for my friends, family, and benefactors. Every single day, as my prayer for all those who are benefactors of mine, for my friends and my family, every day is my intention because we have a obligation to give thanks and glory to those who have given us the opportunity to be, to be given the grace from others to be uh, <laughs> taken care of to be helped. All right, that'll do it. Think about that today. Go to Thanksgiving and thank God for all that he has done for you. We'll be right back after this short break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. God love you. Howdy, this is Adrian Fonseca, producer of the Catholic Drive Time Show. Heard Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. Central and 7 a.m. Eastern, right here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. And I'm proud to tell you that Real Estate for Life is an underwriter of Catholic Drive Time. Real Estate for Life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations, offering their clients a faith-based experience. They are online at realestateforlife.org. That's realestateforlife.org. God love you. Gloryandshine.com, a generous underwriter of Catholic Drive Time. Gloryandshine.com is a Catholic family-owned company making a variety of personal care products ranging from lotions, soap bars, gift boxes, body mist, beard care, and more. At Gloryandshine.com, they state their mission is to, quote, craft every product with deep intention while holding a vision of sharing the gospel. They are good for the body, mind, and soul, unquote. God love you, Gloryandshine.com. Thank you again. The next National Men's March to End Abortion is Monday, November 15th in Baltimore. We will gather outside of a local abortion center and march to our rally point outside of the USCCB Fall Assembly. Men, it's time. Surely, if you're thinking about the reality, the horror, and the enormity of abortion, you have to be moved to do something. Go to themensmarch.com for more information and commit to join us on November 15th in Baltimore. And welcome back to Catholic Drive Time. This is your producer, Adrian Fonseca, and this is a pre-recorded show because today is Thanksgiving. So we are at home, hopefully asleep, hopefully going to be eating quite a bit today. And today we are going to go through this article by Michael Foley from the New Liturgical Movement on Thanksgiving Day Mass. Thanks or no thanks. At, uh, you can find it on newliturgicalmovement.org. And we're going to be talking a lot, a little bit about the uh, origins of Thanksgiving from a Catholic perspective. 
and uh, what some of the, some things that you may not have heard before, some things that you may have heard before, but I think this would be an interesting perspective. One thing that they wanted to point out, so we have about 10 minutes or so, 12 minutes or so to cover this article, so if I can't cover it all, just go look at newliturgicalmovement.org, Thanksgiving Day Mass, or thanks or no. So that will pull it up. Okay, one thing here that it talks about if you're looking online, if you're watching the video portion of this, you can see it right here. It says the Catholic harvest celebration in the Middle Ages, despite the fact that the pilgrims had a hatred for popery, meaning Catholics, or they would call them the papist. They, according to some scholars, when the pilgrims who had spent time in Holland before landing on Plymouth ran out of geese for their feast, which geese was a was a food that was eaten on St. Martin's Day, which happened in, on November 11th. And that is how they went, ran out. They looked for another bird that was similar, and they found a bird that was unique to North America. And that's how the Martin Mass Goose became the Thanksgiving Day turkey. What's another influence? Well, it says here, Thanksgiving Day included the intriguing possibility that Squanto, the liaison between pilgrims and local Poconocuts, was a baptized Catholic and having been saved by the Franciscans from the slave trade in Spain before returning to New England. That'd be very interesting. I know I've heard that many times before, and I know it's a technically a disputed uh, piece about Squanto, whether or not he was Catholic or not, though, you know, I'm biased, so I tend to believe that that is actually true. Let's see here. The, for example, President Franklin D. Roosevelt moved Thanksgiving Day up one week earlier in order to extend the Christmas sale season. Jokes abounded during the period of Thanksgiving, and there was now a new holiday for the uh, Thanksgiving Day. In 1942, Congress passed a law that made the fourth Thursday of November the permanent date for Thanksgiving, removing it from the desecration of the executive branch. The discretion. Of the executive branch. I didn't actually know that. I didn't know that the the Thanksgiving Day had been moved about by between George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, that it was being battered around. I had no idea that was that, that was a thing that happened. So the more you know. Other customs greatly graduated. Let's see. Uh, talk about football, you know, and things like that. But let's look at the Catholic response. So the Catholic observance of Thanksgiving developed gradually as well. In 1858, the governor of New York declared that the third Thursday of November of that year to be Thanksgiving. The next day, the New York Times reported, with the exception of the Catholics, all religious denominations observed the day and the churches during the morning service were generally thronged. That's very interesting. By the early 20th century, however, American Catholics were not only following the Thanksgiving trend, but in some ways trying to lead it. The Pilgrims, the Sacred Heart Review, rightly noted in 1913, failed in their attempt to abolish the Catholic holiday of Christmas. Instead, they successfully added a holy uh, a holiday that Catholics could in good conscience observe. But the same article laments that Thanksgiving has to be a great extent degenerated into a day of feeding and football games. This, mind you, in 1913. Consequently, the article admonishes Catholics to be the ones who return Thanksgiving to its religious core and to be foremost in the observance of Thanksgiving Day by starting with a morning mass, the greatest act of Thanksgiving that could be performed on earth. This is, I think, incredibly important to note because this was happening back in 1913. And this also gives, um, gives me great joy to understand that even back then, there was a sense that we could take these holidays, these secular holidays, and make them into something beautiful. Make them into something Catholic because we can take the idea of Thanksgiving, giving thanks to God for the benefits that he gives us and take that by going to Holy Mass instead. 
by going to Holy Mass and being careful not to take, uh, to fall into sin during this day. What do I mean by that? But if we end up indulging ourselves where we, to the point of gluttony, well, we have just committed a mortal sin on a day that we are trying to keep as a holiday, which comes from the word holy day. So keep that in mind. Let's continue on the article. At that time, the Holy Mass had only recently become a common way for Catholics to observe Thanksgiving. Contemporary examples include a Pan-American Psalm High Mass of Thanksgiving held in St. Patrick's Church. That's an interesting idea. I, this is too, this, this, uh, this video is going to be coming out. This uh, radio show is going to be coming out. And it's going to be too late to do anything this year for Thanksgiving. But let's think about that. Let's talk to our priests. Let's talk to our local church and say, how can we make Thanksgiving a holy day? How can we make this something Catholic? I mean, everybody's going to have the day off anyways, right? Well, let's go to Holy Mass. And the Church of Christ protests that the Catholic hierarchy was passing the Thanksgiving Mass off as an official state event in order to show other nations, such as Italy, rife with a potential Catholic uh, immigrants. I don't know what that word means, that the United States is not a Protestant country, but a Roman Catholic country. That's actually pretty funny. <laughs> they started telling everybody that Thanksgiving, this is a Catholic holiday. This uh, we're Thanksgiving for the Thanksgiving Mass. And they started uh, <laughs> telling everybody that, and the Protestants got very angry because of it, that's that's pretty funny. I think we should uh, do that. We should try to co-opt it. We need to not cede the culture to the, well, for one, to the left, but even to the Protestants. We have to embrace the fact that this that things can become Catholic. We can take the good things that are available to us and make them into something Catholic. Let's see. The Bishop Camillus gave this decree uh, on Thanksgiving. We gladly avail ourselves to the official recognition by the nation's rulers of God's blessings upon the United States of America to call our faithful people before the altar of God. We hereby direct that on Thursday, November 27th, 1913, the pastors celebrated a high mass of Thanksgiving at an honor deemed most convenient for the people of the parish. After mass, they shall recite the prayer for authorities and that the people may join them in supplication to God for the spiritual welfare of church and country. Immediately thereafter, benediction with the blessed sacrament shall be given and be followed by a solemn te deum. Wow. That is an idea right there. That is a great idea that we can start doing for in our, in our local parishes for the Catholic faith. And let's do this. Let's spend Thanksgiving. Let's do a solemn high mass. Let's do a solemn high mass. Let's get together. We just have some, we just pray for spiritual welfare of the church and country. And then afterwards, let's have the best sacrament exposed. Let's give adoration and thanksgiving to God. Let's do benediction and then let's sing the Te Deum. What a beautiful way to celebrate what is a, what we perceive to be a secular holiday. Let's make Thanksgiving Catholic again. And let's skip around to the article because we're already missing a lot of this because of uh, we're running out of time already. We only have a couple more minutes. Let's see. Oddly, the press misconstrued Pius' desire to see universal custom of statesmen giving thanks to God and reported that the Pope had asked the world to observe the United States traditional Thanksgiving Day. Yeah, that's kind of funny. They're saying that Pope Pius XII, he said, our heart is touched and comforted by this recurring evidence and would that it would be universal of one of the first ch uh, charges linked to the mission of responsible statesmen. It is truly just and right everywhere to give thanks to God for the blessings of life, liberty, liberty and abundance. Praise be to God for that. Pius twelfth here is saying that all nations everywhere should be praying and giving thanks to God for our country and, for, and to be praying for our statesmen. I think that's amazing. I think that's something that we should encourage. 
Now, here's something that I think is very important because, you know, on Fridays, we are to give up meat. We have to abstain from meat on Fridays. But, you know, we have Thanksgiving Thursday and then Friday comes. What are you supposed to do with all the leftovers? Well, let me read to you about what's quoted, unquote, the turkey indult. Uh, but did Pius XII also grant a turkey indult that allowed U.S. Catholics to eat flesh meat the day after Thanksgiving? Beginning in 1931, the Holy See granted American bishops the faculty to dispense from the laws of fast and or abstinence on civil holidays. The bishops, however, rarely took advantage of this indult individually, and they never acted as a group to grant a national dispensation. Moreover, the faculty they received did not include the day after a civil holiday. From what I can tell, the closest that the U.S. came to a turkey indult was November 1965. Quote, Roman Catholics in the Archdiocese of New York will hear the announcement at tomorrow's Masses that on the Friday following Thanksgiving, they need not refrain from eating meat. The dispensation granted by each bishop with the power from the Vatican will probably be in effect in most American dioceses. And let's continue the end quote there. Uh, less the, back to the article. Less than a year later, the church would no longer require Friday abstinence under pain of sin except during Lent. <clears throat> Excuse me. Current canonology finds Friday as an obligatory day of penance, the standard form of which is abstinence from flesh meat. Other forms of penance, however, may be done instead. If then one wishes to enjoy turkey and cranberry sandwiches on Black Friday, one can, by doing some other form of penance besides abstinence, the 1931 Vatican letter concerning the civic holiday indult recommends making some offering, especially in favor of the poor. Now, the article goes on further, talk about Thanksgiving after the Second Vatican Council, and we're not going to have time to talk about that, but I think I just want to end on this idea. The Eucharist word, and the kind of the, this article, if you want to go read it, ends on this idea as well. The word Eucharist means Thanksgiving. Let's give thanks to God on this Thanksgiving day. Let's offer our highest love to God. And the day after Thanksgiving, let's think about how can we give glory to God on this Thanksgiving, the day after Thanksgiving. Are we going to rush to the stores and after giving thanks to God, go and buy up as much stuff as we can? Are we going to fill the malls with people trying to get the latest deal? Are we going to stuff our face with leftovers and commit the sin of gluttony? Or are we going to continue on the Friday afterwards to give thanks to God for all the glory that he has done for us, that we are un that we undeservedly receive from him? Okay, let's end there. Praise be to Jesus Christ. We will see you back tomorrow as another pre-recorded show, but the, the today's show will be over right now. And, but on Monday, we'll be back live in studio. And so let us know how your Thanksgiving went. We're excited to hear from you about how that went for you. And we want to uh, wish you a great and happy and holy Thanksgiving day. Pray for us and we will be praying for you. God love you. God bless you. And we'll see you back on Monday, same time, same place on the Catholic Drive Time Show. And God bless you and have a holy, holy Thanksgiving. Thank you for joining us on Your Catholic Drive Time where it is our pleasure to keep you informed and inspired. Join us Monday through Friday at the same time, right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. Don't forget to connect with us. Just go to facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Be sure to share more than just us today. Share Jesus with everyone you meet. Bye now, and God love you.